Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Well, we're very lucky to have uh, a very good friend of mine, Lieutenant General James Bashel, CBCBE. James is a director, uh, a consultant, and a trustee, but he had a, a very prestigious career in the military. And um, we go back to P Company together when we're doing airborne training selection. And he has had a fascinating career. James, over to you. Perhaps you could give us an update of some of the jobs you did while you were in the military, and also what life is like for you in lockdown and the kind of work you're doing today. Perhaps you could begin with that. So I think we're in the last few years of my military service, I mean, as with most people, I did a variety of command and staff appointments. And I was very, very lucky to command an armored division in Germany, which was a wonderful experience. Mm. Uh, and then from there, I did a fantastic staff job in the PGHQ as the chief of staff in PGHQ, which was at a time of the close down of um, Afghanistan. Uh, a lot of focus on on bringing people back and all the equipment we had to, to recover. Uh, from there, I did a, an, an interesting job um, for a few months on uh, HR with the sort of as the Army's personnel director, and then I finished uh, commanding what was ultimately called Home Command, which was a, a three-star command based back in Aldershot, with a variety of HR and also Homeland Operations focus. So it was a, mm. it, was, it was a it was a great sort of final ten years in the military of some really interesting work. Yeah, and, and PGHQ, for those who weren't in the military, do you want to explain a bit about what the... Yeah, the Permanent Joint Headquarters. Yeah, the Permanent Joint Headquarters, which was established, I suppose, as sort of a defence strategy following the Falklands War, where there was, uh, there was thought to be confusion of command and control between who, was, who had actual authority over some of the, the assets that were deployed to the South Atlantic. And so they created a Permanent Joint Headquarters, and the P, the permanent, meant that it was always in place, because previously... It had rotated the joint commander who rotated through the three services and so this is a permanent structure yeah and and the, the the command the permanent joint headquarters then took under command everyone who was deployed on overseas operations around the world mm. well i've always admired all the different things you've gone for you've got a, a zest for life and after leaving uh, the military you, you've done this portfolio career and it'd be interesting just to tell people the kind of stuff you're doing now but also you did one of the legs of the round the world clipper race which is not for not for the slouches and you learned quite a few lessons about handling difficult situations crisis conflict there and and i think you had a lovely story that you told when we spoke last would you just share a bit about some of the things since leaving the military so i think yeah well thank you since leaving i, I, I everyone decides what, what what they want to do it all depends i think on their family circumstances and their own position and where they want to live and personally i wanted to have variety I want to understand more about the life I haven't lived in the in the private commercial sector. I want to help charities, and I'm the, uh, the, the national president of the Royal British Legion. And I wanted also to have an opportunity to to, to do things I haven't done before. I'd I'd started sailing in the army and did some, you know, I did a very good trip up the east coast of America on one, one of the military yachts. And then I went and signed up for a thing called the Clipper, the Clipper race, which is around the world race, which uh, Robin Knox Johnson uh, is the CEO. And I did the leg uh, before Christmas from 
Cape Town uh, into the Southern Ocean through to, around to uh, Fremantle in Australia. Um, and, and it was, it was, I, I think I told you, we had, a, we had a few adventures along the way it, and it was very hard in, in many respects. It was cold, it was very wet, big seas, big, big winds. But I think that's what sort of a lot of military people, you know, I, that's why I joined the military. I enjoy those adventures and the travels and the, and the mm. excitement. Mm. Um, and also testing yourself and then finding out how, how good you really are and, and being a stronger person for the experiences of hardship. So yeah, sailing, sailing is, a, is a big passion of mine. Yeah, and what was the, the, the story about you know, getting things wrong and learning from it? Because well, we, we had a, what's called an accidental jive, which is, which is not a, it's, it's, a, it's an awful thing to happen. When you're going downwind, the wind gets behind the sail and the, the ship, uh, the yacht, accidentally jibes and we were sort of thrust over onto, onto, a, onto a different um, pitch with, with you know, myself and the source underwater on the wheel. Uh, and, and I just, I think to me, it just, it just... Oh, you actually, you actually went underwater? Well, my, up to my waist almost. Oh, sugar. <laughs> it was That's pretty not... cold and frightening in the middle, middle of the night. But, uh, but the, uh, the, you know, I, I think, if you, I say, if you transpose that into leadership, I always, I always say in, in all the sort of senior posts, and I, when I talk to senior people, be humble. You know, recognise how lucky you are compared to those who may want to be where you are who never got there. Yeah. And be self-reflective. And, and all of that, you know, in a, in a sort of situation like that just shows that, you know, you, we can all make mistakes on the helm and and therefore you need to be honest with yourself about your own capabilities and very match nice. yourself carefully to, to the environment you're operating in. Yeah. Prepare properly. Yeah, very wise. Um, so the other thing we were going to talk about was some of the different jobs you're doing now because you've got quite a portfolio career. You mentioned about yeah. charities. Yeah. But you, you've been asked to help a number of organisations as a sort of advisor to them. Um, what are some of the things you're doing at the moment? So, I mean, particularly with the military, I have gone back into some of the military courses and such as the higher command and staff course and other military headquarters who are training. And they very kindly invited me to come back and help mentor and, and give something back from what I've learned. Mm. And again, this sort of secular idea that nothing, nothing ever happens uniquely. It, it, there's always others who've had the similar sort of experience. And, when you get to command command appointments, you you I said the preparation you, you don't really get properly prepared for it, and if you can have someone just to lean on your shoulder and say, look, this this happened to me, you might consider this or you might consider that, that sort of advice just to try and give people a, a sort of sense of some of the options they may have in an environment which they haven't been in before. Yeah. And so I I, I it's called you know but I, I do some mentoring in, in that regard, mm. and and then I work for a number of companies on, on, a, on their board and I as a sort of senior military advisor just help them in, in a number of a number of areas to pass on some of the some of the ways in which I learned and some of the things I did and they don't automatically cross across easily into into a civilian environment but some of them do and it's just a broadening of experience I suppose. Yeah and it's good of you to be honest about that that you know the the military don't have an arrogance about that it's the last thing we want anybody to think that the military think they know it all and there they have the answers to everything because they don't and uh sometimes some military people have promised the world to people and got caught on camera and that's always very embarrassing you probably can think of a couple of examples we don't need to mention those officers um but generally there's some very fine officers who are doing fabulous work often for like you for charities and other and other areas helping with their understanding of crises and problems and um, just staying calm under pressure, which takes me on to the next one, dealing with crises. I mean, we're in the middle of the global pandemic. 
um, of an unprecedented nature, maybe 35% drop in GDP, uh, huge amount of unemployment, people uncertain about the future for a number of years to come, businesses disturbed and the rest and cash flow problems. What, what would be your advice about dealing with a crisis and advice that you've given other people from your own experiences? I think the you know when you look at the nature of a crisis and and I've sort of lived through a few of these sorts of things not quite at the same scale as what we're living through now but they tend to happen they're unforeseen you know we haven't seen them coming they tend to happen very quickly and they tend perhaps to almost overwhelm engulf people and and it's it's you struggle sometimes to see a way forward and, and to understand what's going on so I think the most important thing for anyone in a leadership capacity or perhaps you know not even necessarily leadership capacity is to understand as best they can the context of what's going on mm -hmm. so in this instance you can see a lot of research going on to understand the the, the, the the biology of this of this disease we're dealing with and can we find a cure and how is it being transmitted and why are young children not getting older people are and why are obese etc so you're in a contextual understanding how did this happen? But it's, it's always too late to a degree. And then the second thing I think you've got to do is act. And if, you if you're static, if you do nothing and you look at it and you worry and you think, well, in a, in a few weeks' time, we'll understand more, you, then I think you get overwhelmed by it. You've got to be decisive as best you can. Uh, and those that succeed clearly make the right decisions. It's not, you shouldn't act and get it wrong, but having that context will help you. Mm -hmm. And then I think thirdly, you've got to lead it. You've got to be seen to be out there in front of it uh, inspiring and helping people. And I, I think particularly in the military, where often a, a small crisis involves, sadly, people being killed, you know, people are paralyzed by shock at the, at, the, at the awfulness of losing their friends and seeing their friends killed in very awful environments. Mm. Again, I think it's important that for military people, they're out and they lead it. And, yeah. and it, th those are the sorts of things I think, and I think some of that works across into, into other environments beyond just the military. Mm. But it's, it's not an easy environment. I mean, no one's comfortable in this sort of, you know, in rapid change yeah. and, and feeling uncertain and feeling worried. And particularly when you're worried financially and with your family, it's a very difficult and, uh, and, and hard environment to live in. Because it's quite, this is quite personal for you because um, your wife works the NHS, your son's um, going to go and go to Santos and serve in the military, hopefully. I mean, well, do you want to talk about... My daughter's qualified as a doctor as well. So yeah. So so tell us a bit about what it means for you personally this crisis and 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 how you're handling it. Well, I think um, military people are quite well sort of trained to to deal with lockdown. Actually, um, you know, you're used to having a bit of a, a routine of being told what what you can and can't do, and I find this environment, you know, reasonably straightforward. I I you know I think you've got to be self-disciplined. You've, you clearly if you're not working you still need to get up at a certain time do some fizz have a project to do do some reading so i'm I've, i haven't found it too stressful i i think the, the only thing we really miss is getting out to see people uh mm. the so it's, it's an opportunity perhaps to you know to, to catch up mm. uh i mean clearly i'm i mean I, you know i am anxious about seriously going into the hospital every day and also i said my daughter's also disqualified so there is a bit of personal sort of worry i have but mm. I think she had the same for me when I used to go overseas on operations. So I think it's we're sort of used to it as a family a bit. Yeah, no, you certainly are. And and you've been in many crises, um, some um, in the history books, and and some people won't have heard of, but were certainly very challenging. But nine eleven, you were 
um, in one of the headquarters when it all happened. And, and you have a story about an inspiring leader who... Yeah, I, I, we were talking earlier. I'd like to hear about that. Well, you, yeah. well, you, know, the, you, you know the man. And, and, and the reason we were talking about it is uh, Tony Piggott, very sadly, has very recently died. He was our commandant when we were both at Santa's, as you will, will, will well know. But on 9-11, 9-11 was, was you know, rather like this crisis in some regards. I mean, it happened very quickly. It was not foreseen. Uh, well, certainly wasn't foreseen by, by, by the vast majority of people. Um, and it had huge consequences around the world. And so initially, you can, I think when we reflect back, and I was working in the Ministry of Defence, and I was in, in, the, in the underground command bunker at the time when it happened. You know, for the first, I think, 36, 48 hours, there was just huge uncertainty. What did it mean? America had been attacked. Was someone else going to get attacked? There were all sorts of questions. And, and there was a lack of focus to, to the work we were doing in the, in the buildings. We tried to grapple with the, the enormity of what had happened and what we could mm. do to help the Americans. And Tony Piggott, who was the, uh, he was the Deputy Chief of Defence Staff for Commitments, a three-star general, was overseas at the time, I think on a, on a visit to Africa, and he was rushed back by a military aircraft so he could get back to London. And I always remember he came back into this room we had in, in the downstairs in the, in, the, in the main building, in a, in a, in a, in a bunker. And, and, it, and when you're in there, you could, be, it could, you could um, be, have what you're saying televised into various rooms. And he had all the staff, everyone was focused on him. And it was his, his moment, and he was brilliant. He, he, he clarified the situation by asking us seven questions. And those seven questions essentially started with who did it and, and, and. And what that did was provide an absolute glue to all this staff work that was going on. It threaded everything together, it gave a focus, and, and from then on, the staff you know, had a purpose, mm. they knew what they were gonna go and do. We didn't know what it would mean in the long term, but here were the things we were now going to start to put in place to start to get towards some sort of normality beyond this crisis. And I thought in that moment, you know, in, those, in that sort of two-hour briefing he gave to all the staff and took questions, he'd, he'd absolutely provided you know, proper leadership in a crisis that mm. everyone could turn to and look to for to be, you know, just to have that certainty, right, we know what we're doing, we've got a direction to go in. Yeah, so, so key. Yeah. And really taking it from the inspiring leader to the inspiring leadership team, because a leader is crucial for that clarity, that focus, that sense of purpose and meaning behind what they're doing and the end state of the legacy of what you want to leave, leave things better than you found them. And they then rely on an inspiring team. And you've worked in many different inspiring teams and some bad teams, I imagine. But let's just stay with the inspiring teams. Which, if you were to pick one or two inspiring teams, which would you pick? And well, what were the qualities I, that, that made them inspiring? I, I think just generally in the military, because you work in small teams in adversity against a difficult situation, you tend to draw us very close together as, as, as a group of individuals. And you'll often find military people who've been together on done things around the world still talking about it many years later because it was for them a transformational moment, a unique moment in their lives. And when it's good, it is extremely uplifting and powerful, and it carries you on a wave. And I think when I was commanding the Joint Force Headquarters, which was a small team of probably no more than 50 staff, we all knew each other well. We'd done some interesting work around the world together. And when we dealt with the crisis, which was a crisis in Libya, we just had that sort of understanding of each other. We knew each other's strengths and weaknesses. I knew who I could trust and rely on. I understood the, who they all were. Uh, and we were a sort of a family. I knew some of their family as well. You know, it, it was a, a very strong bond 
that have been built up through the work we've done. And I think another time in my life... I mean, Can I just pick yeah. up on that one? Because yeah. you're, you're also very close with Jonathan Shaw, who you saw yeah, in his video yeah. recently, yeah. and you described him when we were chatting earlier as an inspiring leader to you, and you learned yeah. a lot from him as he was your commanding officer and also director of special forces and things. But that he was quoting Rupert Smith, General Rupert Smith, who talked about, you know, leadership is about pitting your strength against their weakness and also yeah. knowing the strength of your team and knowing their weaknesses. So uh, making use of the strengths, but protecting their weaknesses. And that really fits with what you've just talked about there, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, I was going to sort of say as my second example was working in two para at the time under his command, uh, where I was a company commander. And you know, I learned so much from Jonathan. I mean, he was a, a fantastic leader. And he, in turn, had learned a lot from Rupert Smith. And intellectually, I think that sort of rolled down into my thinking, such that, you know, I only focused on intent. The clarity that you have to provide as a leader up front is about the intent and people understanding the big ideas that you've got in your head. And I used to spend a lot of time writing intent. And I learned that from Jonathan. And, and he, was, he was very people-focused as well, really people-focused. And mm. Two Para at that time was very close because he had a very good touch with everybody. It gave me a lot of room to, to you know, could have hung myself, I guess. You know. But he, 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 he trusted me. I gave me a lot, lots of, of um, authority to go and do the things I wanted to go and do. Mm. You know, we, had a, we won the boxing when he was the CEO, the first time we won it ever, I think. He created, mm. and, and around that created a gel of a, of a battalion spirit. Mm. It, it was a very, very strong and a very happy place Mm. For, for all of us to, to live and work uh, and with our families. Yeah. And then before I hand over to Ben for some uh, quick fire questions, what about a couple of amusing stories? Because, you know, we can get quite serious in a crisis. And one of the things that uh, you, you've always been good at, even when we were kicking around getting covered in mud and <laughs> shit in, on, on uh, Long Valley, was you, you always would crack a joke and make us smile, well, and I... you, you, me and Dave Hudson. So what, what, was, what are your amusing stories? I, I was... Um... I think at the time, again, when Jonathan was the CEO, and uh, he, we, we had a fantastic fancy dress battalion party, which, you know, is a big risk catching some regards, because you never know what's going to happen. So we, it was across in a playing field, across a bridge, and there was a big swimming pool that someone had sort of built, sort of, you know, so, so and I, we all got thrown, all the officers got thrown in and all this. And it was a fantastic, it was just a great, great party. Anyway, towards the end of the evening, I think some of the soldiers had misbehaved going across the bridge and the police had then decided to come and just investigate and across the far side of this field i could see these two policemen coming towards us i think it was a, a male officer and a female officer and then as they got within about 100 meters the tom saw them and just ran towards them and they were going to grab them and throw them in the swimming pool <laughs> i think they, they may have thought there were people in fancy dress i don't know strip luckily, or something, you know? just in time the battalion 2ic got there and just managed to sort of save the day <laughs> And our, and our reputation, because it could have been uh, very embarrassing. Yeah. And then and the, other, about, the, other, the other story, the other which I told last time, I just, it, it, you know, is, a, is um, a time in Iraq when I was a brigade commander. And I was, I was going outside for a cigarette uh, out of the building. And uh, I was walking down the corridor. And, and you sort of go down the corridor, turn right, I think, and turn left, and you're out the door. And I was stopped by a visits officer, uh, Abby. And she said, um, and she wanted to talk to me. And she, then we have a conversation. She said, smoking is very bad for you, Brigadier. And I said, yes, I, I know that. But don't tell my wife I'm in a bar. And then uh, there was this huge explosion. And just outside the door, it probably a bit further than just outside. So it felt it was out. And the door blew open. There was a rattle. And the sort of dust came up the corridor. 
Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, she, and she just, <laughs> we had a sort of a laugh. Like, well, you know, I could easily have been killed if I'd gone out the door. No, 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 don't worry about smoking. You know, <laughs> smoking really does kill you if you've gone out for a cigarette, because that's where you're standing. Oh, marvellous. I love so, it. Great. Well, thank you for that. And, and over, yeah. to, over to you, Ben. First question is, is about staying healthy. So obviously you've been in, in high pressure environments um, where you've got to keep your head. How do you stay both mentally and physically healthy? Well, personally, I've always found that in order to stay at, at least on top of your game or just you know, at the very top, at the, at the sort of just ticking over, I need my sleep. And I've always prioritised sleep as an absolute uh, weapon for trying to keep keep yourself in the game, and and uh, you know that's an expression. You know, sleep is a weapon, and and commanders who don't, who can't, who are too tired to think, are dangerous. And it's so important to get uh, to get your sleep. And so I always have you know been happy then to say, right, I am going to go to bed. You take over. I'll come back in the morning and delegate to people to allow them to 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 sleep. Sorry, to allow them to get on with it while, while you have some sleep. Mm. Um, and I think that's a very important lesson for all people in, in, you know, in, in positions of responsibility. And you can see some of our politicians sometimes look incredibly tired and they must be working so hard. And it's just so important that, that people who have huge responsibility are, are stay as fresh as they can. Mm. And, and I said, for me, it's sleep. And I can think the times when I've been in a cry, I've just, my head has hit the pillow and I, haven't, I don't even remember sort of thinking that I'm about to go to sleep. I was just asleep until my alarm clock went off and uh, you know, a very deep sleep. And you just, you do weep, you do so wake feeling refreshed. Yeah, yeah, so important. And, and you make better decisions and you can actually cope better. I, but I, it, was, it was interesting, I was talking about um, at the Apollo 13 series, at the, the 13 minutes to the moon, which mm. I think is the best podcast I've heard on dealing with a crisis. And I was listening to it again the other day to the next episode. And one of the things they were having to deal with is to try and get the three astronauts who were stuck on Apollo 13 to get some sleep. Mm. And, they, and they were so tired and they had to make some huge decisions and judgments. Um, but, uh, but sleep was really working against them. Um, and and they, they, could, they could monitor it from mission command that they hadn't slept and therefore they, they, they realized that the, the, the weight of their decision-making space was, was falling down. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, to me, it just highlighted again the importance of people resting. Yeah. So, and and uh, it's sometimes so difficult to carve that time out, though, when you're in absolutely under pressure. It it, it um, is, but you, I think you've therefore, I said, you've got to delegate. Mm -hmm. You've got to trust the people you work with. You've got to train people. Your second in commands or your, the people to stand up. You've got to do part of the the pre preparation. Certainly, the military is that you train those beneath 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 you to be able to take over from you, and it's. It's, it's, it's an obvious weakness. There's only one of you and there's 300 people. You are a very weak link in that chain if you go down. So someone's got to be ready to take over. from. So you therefore need to create an environment in which you trust people, delegate to them and mm. empower them in training so that when something happens, they can, they can step up to, to the plate to replace you without feeling overly anxious or, or, you know, not, not, or yeah. not able to do the job. So it sounds like the real key here is having really good people working for you and with you, so you can actually, in with with a relaxed mind, be held yeah, to take I think that step back. I think, I think also, I mean, it, you know, I've never really been in a position where I can choose the people who came to work with me. It was mm. very much uh, they were all appointed to, to to appointments in the in the headquarters, and I think there's also a huge responsibility on the leader to train his or her staff 
and yeah. to create the, the the quality of the people around him or her that, that they want. And, uh, and, and I think people really respond to that, to have the clarity about mm. knowing what decision they can make and what decision is left to the leader. And those sorts of training ideas, I think, are, are fundamental to, to, to building a team. Staying with that one, Ben, if I could just come in. Yeah, um, sure. Many of the CEOs that I work with get a team that they inherit when they become CEO and they go, I don't like those people and they clear them out. A bit like when I worked for Field Marshal Lynch, he thought it was a good idea to fire two of his brigadiers or whatever uh, to encourage the rest. Um, and normally it happened within about a week that he'd fire various people. I'm not quite sure how wise that was. I don't think it was very fair. I don't think he, he gave them a chance, but he decided to fire them just to scare everybody else. It was a sort of culture of fear rather than in inspiring leadership. Um, but in, in business, people think they can change the team over and have a completely new team. But in the military, you made it clear that you, they get appointed by somebody else in the military secretary's branch where you were, and these are the roles they get. So you get a team that you don't choose. But, but I see good military leaders make the most of what they have and train and develop them. But a lot of CEOs complain they've been given poor people. They're not their people. And they'll bring in their people from their last job or their last firm, clean out all the who are there and have their people, particularly if they're in private equity, father CEO, father CFO, put in a new team and incentivize them with massive bonuses if they hit the numbers, whatever happens to the people. What's, what's your thoughts, James? Well, I think that's, I mean, the American military are big enough that they tend to, at senior level, pull people with them that they know and like, and they drag people in that they, that they want. The, the British military is too small to do that. I think there is advantages and disadvantages to both of those options. I think the, clearly if you've got people you know can do the job and do it well, why wouldn't you want them on your team? And they know you and they trust you and you trust them. Mm -hmm. and you've done lots of jobs with them beforehand. I can see the advantage of that. I think the disadvantage of doing that is that you tend to get too many people around you who think like you do. Mm. And you're all the same mindset. And I, to my mind, I think that's where Stan McChrystal fell, fell down, you know, very unfortunately, what happened to him in Afghanistan. But he, you know, he, it, this article happened in the newspaper and the, the, the reporter was with them. And, and, and around him, he had all his best friends and people he trusted and really believed. And they all you know, were very, very close. But they all perhaps, perhaps just thought on the same bearing all mm. the time and, mm. and looked at the same problem the same way or looked at the problem the same way. And there wasn't a critical friend amongst them who could say, hang on a sec, is this a wise thing to do? Mm. Uh, and I think that's the balance. If you get, to, you know, I, I love working with people I like and trust. It's great to have, a, you know, but I, I just worry sometimes that, you know, too much of that and you haven't got enough questioning people around you. Mm. That diversity of thought to, to bring Absolutely. new ideas and yeah. creativity um, yeah. into the mix. Yeah. Because yeah. there's always lots of ways of solving a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It just happens that you have done a, a certain way before that worked. It doesn't mean it will work every time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so second question um, is, is on wealth. I think that everyone can do with some good advice around money. <laughs> so um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received or that you give about, about money? Well, I think probably that I was told when I joined the military I'd never make any money, which is fine. And I thought <laughs> that's not why I wanted to join the army. Um, and I think the wealth of my life is about the experiences and the things I've done mm. and the travels and the people I've worked with, particularly in adversity, and the strength of the friendships I've created through that. In the same way, actually, that I have the same you know, friendships now with people I sail with because we share adversity together. So, so I think um, I, I just 
we might learn from that. Don't don't follow the money as as, as a lifestyle. Uh, I, I don't think I think a lot of serious yeah. people who look at this recognize that it's not the way to happiness. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. Just balance your life. I think a lot of people will be um, re, re, reassessing their lives in this, this lockdown yeah, period yeah, and, and yeah. really sort of having different experiences of, of, of being at home with, with family, with, yeah. with, um, with people you care about, and having extended time like myself with, with um, my baby who's nine months old has been the the ones sort of positive out of this this lockdown. So I think a lot of people will be looking about how their balance of, of work life and what they want to achieve um, out of. Uh, out and they'll probably be you know, and they'll be stronger and better for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and also I, I think businesses are gonna gonna reassess how they they what they expect of people in in, yeah, in yeah. that in that way. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what changes now. Yeah, absolutely. In that regard, yeah. So final um, question on, on these three is, is about wisdom. So a piece of wisdom that you sort of live your life by, a credo which you, which you um, try and strive um, for. Well, I mentioned it just now, but, but the, 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 the life I try to live is, and encourage others to live is, is, is one of balance, to hold mm -hmm. things in perspective, in balance. And I say the people that I, I love and know the best and admire the best are, are those who seem to have their life in balance and they are very competent capable people they may be very good soldiers or very good bankers but they're also good fathers or mothers good husbands and wives they are um scratch golfers well probably not quite but anyway they, they've got a leisure activity they enjoy and pursue and and they just hold all those things in a in a, in a, in a balance and i think that's a that's a great um way to try and aspire to live your life and i and i you know I'm, I'm not i'm not i don't always achieve everything i want to do in that regard but i think i try and hold that as, as a as a as a focus and I, you know i've i've particularly in the military I, I i have worried over the years that a lot of military people are so singular focused on on the, what they do and it's it's a very good thing in many many ways and i'm i wouldn't decry it but it it does suck you in in a way perhaps that very few things do in life. And I, I, I can't be certain that because I haven't lived lots of other lives, but it, it, the military is a very one dimensional type of lifestyle, particularly when you go on operations. And it's quite selfish in that regard. You, know, you, you take yourself away from your family and you go overseas for many months. Um, you leave them behind perhaps to worry and be concerned about you and you get on with the job you've got to do. And the mission comes first is, is you know, the great, cry that that, that carries us all together and that and that's that's fu you know fundamentally important mm. but there is there is a risk that you you lose i say a, a sense of balance in your life that you are you, you are wholly um focused right. on your career and your soldiers to the detriment perhaps of your children or, or your or your partner sure yeah and so it's just a, a question that i've i've sort of wondered and one that i've, I've I haven't asked you, Jonathan. It probably applies to both of you. What what made you take the step of of, uh, of a military military career? What what made you make, take that that jump? Because I know it's something that um, a lot of people consider when they're they're younger. Um, I know I did, but but never <laughs> never took took the. Well, I think the, I, mean, I, I I speak for myself. I think the uh, I I wanted to do something different for three years after university. Mm. I didn't I didn't want to pursue a a normal lifestyle i wanted to do something that was completely different and perhaps sort of get it out of my system and then i 
do a grown-up job and, and life would move on and <laughs> it didn't quite happen like that I, I sort of yeah I just stayed on and uh, did, a, did a very grown-up job <laughs> well it just it just it just grows on you and if you enjoy it and, and you're and you're um happy doing it then I think it's the right thing to do I don't I wouldn't I couldn't really think of anything else you know as it went on that I, I would enjoy more and it is it is a you know it for me it, it just ticked all the boxes about um you know the physical challenge travel excitement working with people uh, doing something that was deemed important by the nation you know mm. it's a very it's a wonderful it's a wonderful life in that regard um and and i i suppose i just i just i never got it out of my system it's probably why I, you know particularly i you know i love the physicality of the parachute regiment you know once once i could you know, get used to some of the, some of the hard, you know, it, it you, you feel you achieve something after a hard exercise or a hard yeah. march with weight or something. It's a great experience. That's probably why I still enjoy sailing. It's that, you know, I like to have a challenge, a physical yeah. challenge to overcome. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and um, before we, we came on the call, um, you were sort of talking about the work you're doing, advising um, uh, at the moment. Yeah. And, and the, your sort of career must have really, almost prepared you for advising people in, in, in a crisis? Um, I, I think only because I've lived through a certain number of, you know, like 9-11 or the Libya crisis, yeah. or particular short-term crises in Iraq and Afghanistan, when things have gone wrong unexpectedly, and, and, and you, you're, you're, again, this overwhelming sense comes to you, and you have to step into the breach. Um, and I think those sorts of experiences, as a leader, do prepare you to for, for the perhaps the you know they give you some context to hold your hat against when it comes to looking at something like this when I'm outside the military and I'm looking in at how this crisis is going to impact on you know companies or you know, it, it is having, it's having a big impact for example on the Royal British Legion um, and so we had a, we had a trustee meeting on Monday and we have to make some quite difficult decisions about the best way to manage our way through the crisis. Yeah, yeah, there must be so many charities which are just massively struggling Definitely. right now yeah i mean the legion is strong the legion's fine but, I, but nonetheless there are some difficult decisions that the trustees mm. need to make about uh, about fundraising and and remembrance that uh yeah so so I, you know it's interesting to see these sort of decisions being made and you're slightly outside it and you're just sitting on the periphery trying to help where, where you can yeah yeah um so we got um, not, not a question but a, a, a comment and a and um best wishes from, from someone. So Miles, um, Miles Webb. Um, so he, he's um, just made a comment saying, whilst I'd never wish a crisis on anyone, you can't help feeling that a crisis really tests your team and gives you a rare insight into the real competency of people you thought perhaps more capable. Equally hidden, stars reveal themselves. Um, so we get that opportunity in the military often on ops, but not always in civilian life. Um, he says, hope you're well, General. <laughs> All the best. I, I, I do think I think I think I think Miles, Miles, thanks for that. You're absolutely spot on. The, this this is a um, you know a lot of what you prepare for in the military is is to do something is to deal with a crisis, and when you know it's just an exercise, you know when it's going to finish. You know there'll be an outcome. Mm -hmm. When it's a crisis and there is no real clarity of how it's going to end or how long it's going to go on for or what it's going to really mean. I think some people have, you know, I've seen them just just fall apart slightly with worry and uncertainty because they're so used to living in that in that certain bubble. And and it's it is interesting how 
some people have just got that sort of strength of character that you don't see until you put them under a lot of pressure who are just you know who you go to people when things start to go to go badly wrong yeah um and actually normally it's not your stars it's your stars to, to a degree sometimes can you know that they they, they they worry too much because they've been you know always going and it's the stoical steady people who are the, your go-to people in a crisis because they're just reliable and, and they're not flustered and they just they just cope and manage uh and i agree that's a great thought because it's a great insight i think by mark because you know, i said it a crisis brings out the best and the worst in people yeah, yeah. well actually can i just come in there uh, james because um, talking with, uh, I served with the second battalion, Scott Scards, and um, I, I took over as a platoon commander just after the Falklands War. They'd been to war, and they talked about people who they were surprised they thought weren't very good, were actually very courageous in the conflict, and people who they thought were really good, who were actually quite scared and inadequate when the moment came. They didn't serve as well, though they'd like to talk themselves up afterwards and tell a good story about how they read it. But they knew, the soldiers knew what, who were the courageous ones and who were actually disappointing. What have you found? How would you know, if you're a CEO of a business, who's going to be good in a crisis and who's not? Have you, have you any sort of benchmarks or litmus tests or from experience that you've learned when you can tell the bluffers and the ones who actually will come through? I mean, any, any views? No, I, I don't. I don't think you can. I think. I think the, the crisis is needed in order to bring out these, you know, the, the, the strengths of those who, who who can manage best in a crisis. I, I think you know, you can replicate some of this in training and in exercises and scenarios, and you can push people a certain degree to see who can who can handle it. But I think to try and have an insight into what someone's going to do in a crisis is quite difficult. Mm. Um, and it's it's quite as I say, and that's why people often say it's unusual who you expected to perform struggle and who you were not expecting to be a, a, a gallant or a courageous or a strong NCO to come through. Um, and I, 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 as interest, and Jonathan Shaw um, talked about this, and he, I mean the Falklands War. It's a come back to this idea of an exercise. You're used to an end, an, an end date, and now you don't know. And sometimes it's. Well, in fact, Hugh Pike actually talked to me about this, actually, John both of them. But they, the, the officers tend to think too much. They're trying to, they're trying to, you know, fathom out, rationalise, make sense of it all, and they sort of burn themselves up worrying and thinking. And the stoical young soldier who's just got to carry the weight, do this, do that, are the ones who just say, well, you know, we'll, 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 we'll live it day by day, and and we'll, we'll see what happens. And if we get through it, we get through it. And and having that sort of mental approach to this, I think has got its benefits yeah and and you alluded to earlier uh, your your wife and your daughter both yeah. working for the nhs in the front line and my brother does the same and his two children are both doctors one in intensive care uh, doctoring um they are going to have their turn of ptsd probably from some of the trauma they've seen the deaths that they will deal with in some of the intensive care work you've seen this happen to good men and women who've served in the military and maybe 10 years later. Indeed, Dave Hudson had the courage to talk yeah. about his grandfather who was in uh, Burma uh, as a doctor, uh, but suffered from PTSD. And he, he talked about his own PTSD after he'd had a number of uh, tours of special forces. And, and But it happened years later. How are we going to help people like that in the NHS who are going to suffer the trauma of what they're seeing? 
and experiencing in the coming years? I don't know. I think it, is, it, it could be, a, it could be a, a significant issue for the NHS. But I think you know, one thing I would say is that the NHS, those who work in intensive care, those who work in A&E, those who are close to this, are quite used, as best one can ever be, to seeing injuries and death and dealing with, with death. And, and you know, a lot of people come into hospital die in hospital. And so they're used to that process of, of and they've got a, obviously mortar and all that. It's just a, I think you, you uh, as best you can be, you, you get quite sort of, I wouldn't say immune, but you get quite strengthened and, and, and you have a lot of toughness about it. And I saw it in my own wife, Sarah Lucy, when she, when she was a young student working in A&E, she changed, I always talk about this, her, she changed after she'd worked in A&E and she, she then witnessed and seen the, the horrors of, of you know, difficult um, injuries leading to death and um, is used to it. Uh, and I think for the NHS, it will be the same. Uh, you know, I don't think necessarily the NHS will have the same struggles, perhaps, um, because I think it's sort of, it's, I think for the military, uh, it's, it, I think there are two things really. First of all, there is the violence of the death you witness. Uh, and secondly, they are people you know. And, and, you know, if you're a doctor and someone comes and you've never met them before, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm just, I think there's a, there's a, that, that is, those two factors are additional to some of the stress that military people go through and then they don't go through it the rest of their lives they then go back to try and live a normal life and i think the interesting thing about ptsd or one of the interesting things is that is a delay before it occurs and sometimes as I say it's many years afterwards that people uh fully recognize what's going on inside them that their, their minds that is causing them to feel so i don't know angry upset mm. whatever whatever feature of, of behavior that, that may be yeah yeah, thank you for going into quite a difficult area. What about um, your learning in challenging times when you've got it wrong, uh, made a mistake, and what you, what you learned from your mistakes? Because we're all human. Uh, I think it's described as we are the incomplete leaders leading the complete teams. <laughs> as an incomplete leader, work in progress. What, what do you reckon you got badly wrong? And how did that shape you as a leader that you are today, having had the humility to learn from getting it wrong? Because I got so many things wrong. I, could write a book about my mistakes. <laughs> I think I think we just need to be honest with ourselves that we all make mistakes. You know, we, we do get things wrong, and and I think one of the the ways in which I've learned is that I've I've made things have gone wrong for me when I've been at my most confident or assured, and it's a sense that nothing else. You know, we've really got this, and then suddenly from out of left field something happens, and and I and I've always sort of taken that as sort of that now's the moment when things are going really well, start really thinking about what could go wrong. Mm. And if you're very sure of yourself mm. and you perhaps become a little bit lazy, you start thinking through all the what-ifs and the contingencies uh, and you, you are more comfortable in the moment because you've got to where you want to be. And I think the, you know, you've got to always have, I always use that thing, you know, what now, what next, what if, you know, it's a great, it's a mm. planning, it's the thing we use on, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, what, what's, what's happening now, what 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 is planned to happen next and you're thinking through that and and getting ready for it and then what if something happens that we hadn't foreseen you know have you got a reserve have you got something a contingency stood by uh and having people challenge that what if and saying well you know what what if there was a national there was a you know an international pandemic Oh, it'll never happen. You know? <laughs> and of course, you then, you then start to do your risk judgments about how much you're going to perhaps spend on contingency 
spares and, and PPE and all that, or in the military, how much you're going to take away from what you're doing and create a reserve just in case something else is going to happen that you can't foresee, but you don't know what. Mm. Do you uh, think that, that this think is, um, after experiencing this sort of crisis, that governments and businesses are going to start preparing long term for this, these sort of things? Well, as a lesson, a lesson mm. identified. Well, I think there is something. Yeah. I mean, there is a national risk. You know, the cabinet office holds a list of national risks that 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 are that are assessed as best they can, and then against that, there are then you know government departments and resources assigned mm. to cover off against that risk. And whether it be terrorist attack in our in our own country, or the failure of the economy, or the fuel tankers going on strike, or whatever it may be, uh, you you you, know, you you have you have thought through things that could go wrong and, and you might well call them risks. Mm -hmm. And then against that, you're, you're then going to make judgments about which ones you're going to prepare for and which ones perhaps too expensive or you know, may never happen to, to, to work. And I, I can recall when I was um, in my last job, we, we had some awful floods in, uh, up in Cumbria in 2015, the winter of 2015, and the defences had been built, uh, such as they were, a huge investment in money, to cover 90% of the likely tidal weather systems, and the ten percent hit them, and so that the the, the, the the fences were overwhelmed. There was, there was very significant flooding, and and I, you know, in in the aftermath of that, they you know they talked about well, you, you just can't, we can't afford as a nation to prepare against this you know very minuscule chance, or it may have been even less than ten percent, for the cost to build these defences, these seawalls, and all the rest of it. Uh, that, that there is required. I think there's. A, I noticed. I think government spent have, have committed a lot of money now following the floods this March, which has largely been forgotten very quickly now, uh, to try and prevent it happening again. But it does require a huge amount of money to be spent to cover you off against you know the worst case scenario, which happens yeah. once or twice a year, or perhaps once or twice a generation. And that is a very interesting point that you make, James, about the allocation of resources as a leader, CEO, general, uh, prime minister, uh, minister of a department. Where do you put your reserve? Where do you put your resources? Um, do you have as a military just in case or do you do just in time kind of logistics, which, of course, many companies and I know, you know, happened for many of my colleagues, myself, that. We had just enough to get by, but no big savings and no big reserves. So when the cash flow stops, many small companies are struggling. And, and that's the hard one where you actually either have good fortune, you can say it was a good decision, you might have, who's preparing for an asteroid strike, which will take out electricity stations and things like that, and or a EMP surge or something, which, you know, there's so many things. Any view on how you decide to allocate your resources and prepare for things that may never happen or may happen once a century? What, what's your thoughts? Well, I, think, I think most people now use you know, a risk register of some, some description, which has on the X and Y axis, you know, the likelihood and then the consequence. And, and you probably you know, put most of your eggs, in, if it was a basket environment, in the middle of it. Um, you probably don't invest uh, in the things that are least likely to happen um, and, and certainly you know, least likely with, with least damage to you. Uh, so it's if if it's a you know this is this is the flood situation. It's it's really uh, you know consequences enormous. Likelihood is very little. 
Mm. How much? How much are you prepared to put resource against that? Mm. And it's. Uh, and I think it, it's. It comes down to priorities and how much we can afford as a nation in this environment to spend on this sort of. I think businesses uh, don't 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 do it in the in the same way, and and, and they're under pressure um, as leaders to to. Um, Create value for shareholders, or yeah. um, uh, create profit and, and revenues. So, preparing for crisis is 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 a massive cost. Yeah, I think that most businesses are caught out, even small, medium, and large. I, I read a recent um, uh, a, a, a book which which um, surveyed five um, the CEOs of Fortune 500 and asked them what what crisis plans have they got in place. And less than 50% had any crisis plans. <laughs> and the second question was, um, how do you think you would perform in a crisis? And um, over 93% said that they'd do really well. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think most businesses went straight through the, the planning stage of, uh, of crisis um, management, straight yeah. into recognizing yeah. you're in a crisis and recognizing what sort of crisis you're having to deal with it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I, I think you know, just-in-time logistics, as you say, is, is an efficiency measure. It's, it allows you to, to save on your overheads because you don't have huge warehouses with stores held in them. You just have the stores when you need them and, mm -hmm. and all the efficiency that creates. And as you say, if it's in a, if it's a, you know, in a capitalist environment where the, the, the shareholders, you know, the wealth matters, then you, you're, you're going to reduce your overhead costs as much as you can. Mm which all makes sense. But if, if, you, if you live in a very, very finely geared environment, e economy where everything has to arrive on time to allow you to deliver that, it only takes a small cog not to, not to mesh properly for the, for the process to, to, to fall over. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And when you have something like a pandemic like this, where you've now got a huge amount of air freight not, not arriving, uh, it, it takes a while to, to, to re engineer that those meshes to perhaps deal with having sea containers which obviously are going to take longer and you're going to have to put some storage in place now etc to to, mm. to, to, to to recalibrate how you're going to run your, your logistics and, and your support and i think a lot of that is now going on yeah no, but even um, further than that looking at cash flows where where these huge companies who were looking at um needing government support um had huge amounts of cash on hand which they invest into share buyback buyback schemes which could have gotten through this this um absolutely this and i think and so yeah and and i think therefore the answer to a degree is to come back to my what ifs you know and mm. call it red teaming you can call it whatever you want but but someone is going to say what if this happens and mm. and I, I i think even if you've done a little bit of intellectual thinking about a potential problem you are at least one step ahead when it happens. Yeah, brilliant. It's, it's keeping it on in, in for, for longevity though. So I, I, I saw a recent interview with, with Arnold Schwarzenegger of all, all people. And he said when he was um, governor of, of California, California. Yeah. He, he, um, he stockpiled PPE for such an eventuality as a, as, as a, a pandemic or a bio attack or, or, or some, some sort of crisis. But the expense of storing it all um, came to the crunch when, at some point, the, the next governor or, or had to make a decision between the, the two, three million it was costing to store this um, PPE and keeping it, keeping it on. But so that that sort of memory sort of fades over time, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. That, um, oh, yeah. 
corporate people don't, goes. aren't prepared anymore. No, they're certainly not. Ben, I think we last couple of minutes. Have you got yes. any, any yeah, questions absolutely. from uh, anybody so else? So just got a couple of a, a couple of comments. Um, so we got um, uh, someone who, who listened in last time, um, uh, Venkat, who um, is just beginning his, his career. I think he asked the question last time as well. Um, and he's just going back to your comment around not following the money. Yeah. So um, for, for him, he, he says, there's a question that always comes to me. Being from a middle-class family dangling between um, poverty lines, money is very enticing. It does make me work for something that really pays well, but in turn damages my career growth. What are your thoughts on that? And how do you suggest anyone can balance life between money and their life itself? Interesting. Well, I, I, um, <laughs> it, it, it is, this is the question. This is, uh, the, a very good a friend of mine, Sam McGrath, has written a very a book about, it's called Power Fit. Um, and in it, he talks about uh, health, and he talks about the balance between those who, who chase wealth and those who look after their health. And what you tend to happen is those that chase wealth for a period of time and sacrifice their health will then spend all the money that they can find in the world to try and keep themselves healthy when, they, when their bodies start to go wrong at 60 because they haven't looked after themselves or something like that. And I think that's one of the things that will come out of this pandemic is that I, I read in the paper today that over 300,000 people have stopped smoking. I, right. I think... It has made people wow. aware of the importance of your health. And so I say to Ben, you know, that the money is very alluring, but when you actually boil it down and look at what more money can mean to you, it's probably, unless you win the, the, the lottery, it's not going to change your life. It's going to mean you can have a bigger car or a bigger house or go on more expensive holidays. Mm. It doesn't mean you haven't got a car and you haven't got a house and you go on holidays. It's just upgrade. And is it worth the consequence for trying to chase those extra bucks for the bigger house and the bigger car, yeah. the sacrifice you may make elsewhere. And I think that's, that's what people should think about. Um, and of course, if you're, as he's described himself as middle class, he's, you know, he's got an aspiration probably around money and position in life. Mm -hmm. But I think all the evidence that I've ever read and seen suggests, and my witness people I've, I've met, is that it, it, is, it is the balance and it is the happiness you get from a, a fulfilled life, not just, you know, on a one-dimensional pursuit of other um, yeah. money or whatever, yeah. A million percent, yeah. And, and just Ben, coming, coming in there, I mean, building on what you're saying, James, time and again in the coaching of people I'm with, um, particularly I was working with a friend of mine in Ireland, Oliver Johnson, who's gonna be on the series at some stage, and he's writing about stepping back from the top team, about when people do retire and they look back over their lives, the choices they made, what they went for, that time and again, it's about living your life on purpose rather than off purpose. So what is it that will give his life meaning and purpose? Because mental health, if people have meaning and purpose and they have a passion about what they do they, and, and they exercise and keep fit, they're generally going to be in a very good mentally healthy position. But if they're doing something which is just chasing the money, but it has no passion for them and it doesn't give their life meaning and purpose, that's a big problem. They should not do that. Don't live your life off purpose. Live it on purpose would be my yeah, tip. Yeah. yeah, I can definitely say it's, um, it's a much happier life if you get up every morning wanting to go and do what you do <laughs> rather yeah, than yeah. grinding out the, the, the days because you spend a hell of a lot of time at work. Um, so it might as well be something which, um, which is purposeful, as, as you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And actually, well, one of the companies I work for, Fujitsu, um, Tim Gibson, who's, who's the president who I work with, he said to me, Bash, um, when you come and work, you know, you'll, you'll enjoy it. You'll want to get out of bed to come down and work with you. Mm. And he's been absolutely spot on. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's interesting work and it, and it inspires you. And yeah. you want to go and you know, go to work to do it. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, what's you end with then, Ben? What's the what's yep. the finale? So yeah, just it'd be great to just uh, get a, a book recommendation to finish off with. It's always nice to know um, either something that's been been really interesting or, or something that's been sort of formative for you. So I, I the um, I've just read it, and so it's, this is new to me. But it's called East West Street by Philip Sands, who's mm -hmm. a uh, a lawyer by trade and he uh, writes about the Holocaust and he traces his family who were uh, persecuted by the Nazis and then from a legal perspective he looks and examines how the case was brought at Nuremberg to try people for crimes against humanity uh, and even actually to talk about uh, potentially go as far as genocide and this was the first time that you know state had could be taken to an international court for crimes against their own people and and it's a, so it's a very interesting read in terms of looking at his history and and the family because he came from in the ukraine originally and how his family was so lucky to survive everything that went on around nazi occupied mm. europe mm. um and then how that you know that the, these crimes have now and you, you know i think you know my time in the military were involved in the balkans we had the same challenge against you know people now being taken to court crimes against humanity in, in their own country in the balkans mm. um and it's just it's a very it's very sad and it's very powerful in many many ways and the holocaust remains i think one of the most uh and the, the, the pers persecution of the jews by nazis remains mm. one of the, the the greatest awful most awful things about crimes you know man's inhumanity to man the robin burns line uh that you know of the 20th century yeah so it sort of it sparks a lot of thoughts and self-reflection yeah. anyway but i'd recommend it east east west street philip sands well thank you general Fantastic. and um it um also reminds me of the bloodlands which is another book about not only was it the nazis but actually stalin um between them they killed about 20 million civilians yeah. uh, in that area of ukraine and all the rest and yeah. that's a powerful book to read uh, general um James Bashel, CVCBE. It's a real honor to have had you on the show, so thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Ben. Uh, it's an equal honor to be invited to come onto the show. You have so many more worthy people than myself to be interviewed, but I, I, it's, a, it's a great privilege, and thank you. And, and thank you for what you're doing. I do think it's a great series that you've put together here, both of you. It's really good. Well done. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.